Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. I'm your host, Claire Holtz, and on today's episode, we are discussing the neurobiology of eating disorders with eating disorder expert, Jillian Lampert. Hi, Jillian. Hi. Jillian works for the EMILY program as our chief strategy officer, and she's also the co-founder of the Residential Eating Disorders Consortium, and she has her master's degree in nutrition and a doctorate degree in nutrition and epidemiology. In addition to all of that, she's the author of numerous book chapters and articles about eating disorders and treatment, and she often speaks nationally about eating disorder-related topics. So we're super happy to have you here. Can you just start and tell us when you last spoke about eating disorders to an audience? Uh, let's see, three days ago. Okay, and what was the topic? <laughs> it was on pregnancy and eating disorders. Oh, can you tell us a bit about that? It was interesting. It was to a group of OBGYN docs who are primarily based in the hospital clinic setting, and they basically said, look, we know that eating disorders are a problem. We don't know what to do. And you have seven minutes, go. That is a lot. So what were the top tips? They were really the ask the questions, you know, ask questions, have some sort of answers, uh, and to think about how they talk about weight and gaining weight and changing bodies with pregnancy with all women, not just with people with eating disorders. And I really challenged them to think through how they how they think about it, how they how they message things, how their messages could be heard in unintended ways. And I, I think it was a helpful conversation. I, I hope so. Great. I am sure it was. <laughs> So you clearly have an advanced degree in nutrition and epidemiology, and you also have a deep background in nutrition and eating disorders. What led you to pursue these fields? Uh, Probably a series of lucky events, uh, more than a a planful course, although I am a planner, so I like to think that I was able to plan, uh, plan my career track, but it really, it happened. And it happened because I was I had some amazing mentors. I had some amazing training opportunities. I was in the right place kind of at the right time. I I trained at the University of Minnesota hospitals and clinics as a dietetic intern, and there was an eating disorder unit in the hospital at that point. It's not there anymore. Uh, But it really was the unit in the country that was training a lot of people in eating disorders, and it was one of the first in the country. And so I was able to get some incredible training that most people coming out of a dietetic internship or a, a master's in nutrition wouldn't have had the opportunity to get, so I was lucky that way. I didn't think I would work in eating disorders. I had an eating disorder in high school and college. I never at all intended to work with people with eating disorders, and I found in that training program that uh, I loved it, and I sort of gave it up to the universe and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I've been doing it ever since. So I've pursued a lot of other opportunities and had a lot of other opportunities come my way because of the mentors I've had. But it really was uh, luck and being in the right place and following my, really following my passion. Great. And how long have you been with us at the Emily program? I have been here 13 years next week. Which is an incredibly long time to stay at one job, especially (laughs) nowadays. Why have you stayed that long? Because I love the Emily program. I love the, I love what we do. We help people to find themselves and to be them, their best selves. And I love being able to be a part of that. Recovery is possible and watching people find that and grow into it here is just amazing. So speaking of the EMILY program, here one of the things we like to say is that eating disorders are biologically brain-based illnesses. But what does that actually mean? Right, what does that mean? It means that we, 
We historically thought of eating disorders as really sort of having this cultural attribute or set of attributes and an, an environmental set of attributes that might include psychological factors and things that sort of happen to you in your life and the, the collection of things that happen to you in your life and the collection of the environmental stew you live in collided to create an eating disorder. What we've learned since that theory in the last 10 or so years is that the brain actually has an enormous amount to do with who those things collide for and why they stick. And so the brain-based illness concept is that eating disorders are considered a mental health diagnosis, they're a mental illness. We think of the brain when we think of mental illnesses, but we actually, with the brain research that we'll talk about today, know more and more about what happens in the brain to be able to say this really is something that's happening in the brain that's different than the brains of somebody who doesn't have an eating disorder and it still takes that environmental and and sort of sociocultural stew to to combine in some interesting ways. So the current research you're talking about also suggests that certain individuals are more vulnerable to developing eating disorders than others. Why is that? What makes people vulnerable? Right. It seems to be some genetic predisposition uh, that looks, uh, you know, when you look at the genome, we're we're never going to find the eating disorder gene. We're not really looking for the specific eating disorder gene. And when I say we, I don't mean, you know, me and the the, my conversations I have with myself in my office. I mean we, the, the eating disorder field and the field of researchers. Uh, but when we look at the genetics of eating disorders, there seem to be things that go along with eating disorders. Anxiety and depression are two things that go along with eating disorders frequently, anxiety in particular. So we know that there's this genetic something that happens in our genome, but when we look at the with, look at the brain research, we also see that there's something in the brain that's different in people with eating disorders that has to do with reward and how things are rewarding or not rewarding and how things are essentially noticed or not noticed. It seems to be that people who have uh, brains that have a difference in how they're rewarded or how they notice tend to be the people that get eating disorders. Hilmar Wagner here, who's one of our dietitians, he recently posted a blog about that experience of reward. So for that blog, I'm going to try and remember this correctly, it was a study about someone drinking a non-carbonated water-based beverage and then someone drinking a milkshake, I believe, and it was in relation to binge eating. Can you talk about what that study showed? It's really showing... um how people respond to having something that should be satisfying in our brains. So we take something into our gut by drinking it, and then our gut tells our brain something. And a normal course of of that experience, our gut would say, yay, we had some food, we had some calories, this was lovely, now we're not as hungry. And so we would then proportionally adjust our eating. It turns out that in the brains of people who have binge eating disorder, actively ill with binge eating disorder, their brains have a harder time saying, yay, I'm full, that that sensation is a little different. And so it can be, in the, in the study that you referenced, it can be dependent on what kind of substance they're ingesting. Uh, but we know that the experience is just really different. And people report feeling hunger and satiety differently when they have binge eating disorder than compared to people who don't have binge eating disorder. In opposition to those with binge eating disorder, what about individuals with anorexia? Is that the same response if they were to be given water versus a milkshake, or would it be totally different? Well, in anorexia, it's a little different in terms of what we see in the brains of people with anorexia. It's more an alteration in their reward to get food or sort of the drive to to eat food, and that's down-regulated. It's in a nutshell, it's sort of like 
food's just not as interesting. We all know some of those people who kind of just forget to eat. Uh, and other people in their lives are like, I can't believe you just forget to eat. How do you just forget to eat? Who does that? But some people do. And so we know that there's there's variation in the brain in terms of how interesting food is. And it turns out in the brains of people that are actively ill with eating disorders, with anorexia particularly, when they're put into an fMRI scanner, their brains are not as rewarded by food as people who don't have an eating disorder. And in fact, their brains are more anxious about seeing food than people who don't have an eating disorder. So when their brain sees that milkshake, it says, oh no, instead of, oh yay. So that's a difference in how the reward is experienced. Somebody with anorexia might be more anxious and scared. Somebody with binge eating disorder might be wanting more. Similar to that, there's two experiences of eating. There's wanting and liking. From my understanding, wanting is about what drives a person to get food, to seek out food, whereas the liking aspect is about the satisfaction after eating and the enjoyment level of the food. Can you go through wanting and liking for each eating disorder? Let's say if someone had a hamburger in front of them. Mm -hmm. Sure, so the, so the wanting and liking, let me start by saying the wanting system, if you will, is really the dopamine system, and the liking system is really that GABA and opioid systems. And so they are, like you said, sort of different systems in the brain. They're both connected to reward. They're both connected to how we experience an, an activity like seeing a hamburger and eating it, but they're a different facet of it. And so wanting, when you think about it, wanting is the, is the appetitive factor. It's what drives us to get food. It's the thing that says, you're hungry, go get food, or the thing that says, wow, that looks good, I want that. The GABA and opioid system, the liking system, is the part of the brain that says, oh, that was good, I liked that, I enjoyed that, that was that was what I wanted and what I expected and it was enjoyable and so I want more. So you can see they're connected because if you like something then you'll probably want more of it to a certain degree and when you want something and you get it and you don't like it that's disappointing to the liking system but it could also sort of ramp up the wanting system to try to get something else. So basically in eating disorders we see that in the ill state if you take people who are actively ill with an eating disorder and put them in a functional MRI scanner the people who have anorexia, their brains have essentially a quieter reward, a quieter wanting. It's again that food's just not as interesting, it's more fearful. They don't have the, the strong compulsion to get, to go seek in, in that wanting uh, perspective. Somebody with binge eating disorder, if you put them in the scanner, their brains are wanting, 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 wanting. And that's what you see in the, in the research is that people who with binge eating disorder have a higher sort of noise level or activity in that wanting system and people with anorexia have a much lower noise level in that wanting system which kind of pairs to how the eating disorders behave. From a liking perspective interestingly some of the research shows that people with binge eating disorder have a little bit quieter liking which if you think through that okay I really want something I have this high wanting and I get it and I don't like it as much as I wanted to that's disappointing because we want the experience, so we try again. And then we might think, oh, I didn't, didn't get the right food, or I didn't eat enough, or I didn't try enough, maybe I'll try again. <clears throat> so we keep trying to find our path to liking. But if your liking is a little quieter and your wanting is a little louder, you might be set up in your brain to be disappointed. With anorexia, we see the wanting is a little quieter. The liking seems maybe just fine, but that drive to want and get is lower. So it's not, it's not sort of leading the day. It's not compelling people to eat in the, quite the same way. For those with binge eating who are having trouble controlling their eating and those with anorexia or bulimia who are restricting, 
does it reinforce what you're saying more the more they engage in those behaviors, or is it always sort of a flat level that doesn't change based on what someone does? It's a good question. I'm not sure the research tells us exactly if it increases in a, in a predictable way. Uh, I will say that clinically in the, in the lots and lots of clients that I've worked with over the years, as the behaviors take hold and the patterns get established, it does seem to be that they get stronger and stronger. People uh, get more nervous, more afraid, uh, more worried about, about eating and about, about seeking food with anorexia, and people with binge eating disorder get more compelled and more sort of feel that wanting urge even more strongly as time goes on, and so they, they shift a little bit in different ways, but I do think it gets a, more intensified over time. Could that be one of the reasons we say that those who have suffered for a shorter amount of time often take a shorter amount of time to recover? It could absolutely be. That, that in a, from a brain perspective where new pathways are getting laid down in the brain, new habits are being formed as the eating disorder starts, the sooner you can interrupt those habits and those patterns and those new brain pathways, the easier to form a new one. It's, it's really like that you know, path in your yard that if you keep walking on it over and over and over and over and over again, it takes a long time for the grass to grow back once you stop walking on it. And in fact, you maybe even the next summer, you might be able to look out your window and, and sort of see the shadow in the grass where that path once was, even if you're not walking on it anymore. So the, the more heavily trodden that path is, uh, it takes a little bit, little bit more time to, to get back to healthy path. So we now have evidence and research that shows brains of those with eating disorders differ than those without eating disorders, but what is the brain of someone in recovery like? That's the big question, right? So does your brain change in the illness and then stay changed, or was your brain a little different to start with, gets hijacked, and then goes back to more moderate level of that? So what we think happens, and there's no way to be 100% sure at this point because we can't yet identify somebody who will get an eating disorder, you know, allow them to have an eating disorder, and then have them recover and scan their brains at all three times. And even if we could do that, would we? Not sure. So what we can hypothesize from the, from the literature is that people probably have a predisposition. Again, back to that genetic predisposition. If your brain is genetically predisposed to be a little bit less rewarded or a little bit more rewarded, and then in the environment and, and your psychological temperament kind of collide along with a dieting or an illness or something that changes the way you eat and you end up with an eating disorder, it does seem that those responses in your brain get much stronger. So when you look at the, the research, you look at the functional MRIs of people who are actively ill, their brains respond in these very specific ways with either a, a dulled reward and more anxiety or a heightened reward. And we see that when people are ill. When you put somebody who had an eating disorder but is now well into the scanner and look at them in the same ways, they don't look like the control group, which looks very different than the, the ill group, but they also don't look quite like the ill group. They look somewhere in between. So they're not, you know, they don't look like somebody who never had an eating disorder. Their brain looks different still. It just doesn't look as heightened as somebody who's ill. So we do think that these are uh, sort of parts in the brain that get hijacked, and then once recovery happens and people are well again, then their, their brains go back to more sort of their normal state. But that normal state is probably slightly less rewarded by food or slightly more rewarded by food than the average person, the person who never had an eating disorder. This one's a listener question. If we have a parent who had binge eating disorder, let's say, or anorexia and was predisposed to those tendencies of whichever eating disorder they suffered from, will their child get it? Mm, right. We don't know. Uh, 
they don't have to. It's not sort of a one of those genetic illnesses that you have a really high likelihood of getting no matter what. Uh, I think in that situation, what, what we know from the prevention literature is that the more and the earlier we can give kids mindfulness skills and help them to stay connected to their experience of eating, the better off they'll be. So if you have somebody who had a parent with binge eating disorder, let's say, and they have a heightened response to food and they have a higher reward, sometimes that'll show up in, as uh, a child who's who has a hard time being satiated or is always hungry or always wants to eat, and parents get a little nervous about that, that if we can teach that child mindfulness skills about how to recognize hunger, how to recognize fullness, how to know when their body wants food and how to know when their body's telling them the early signs of being done so that they can be done eating. I think we can do go a long way to prevent people from getting an eating disorder. And the same way with somebody with anorexia or a family history of anorexia, if if that child has the same sort of slightly lowered reward around food, then making sure that they understand the importance of eating and regular meals and regular snacks and taking good care of their body, that can go a long way towards helping them, preventing them from getting an eating disorder. So it all really does boil down to mindfulness. And fortunately, the brain works in, in lots of ways and gives us lots of other clues around uh, when somebody might be at risk if we're looking for things related to anxiety or to um, attention to detail or to impulsivity. So there are other kind of things we can take a look at and help kids to regulate early on. How does this research inform the prevention work we do at the Emily program? We always have speakers going out and talking about eating disorders and signs and symptoms. Are we using this new research in those talks? I, I hope so. I do a lot of them, so I know I do. <laughs> um, I think we're talking about about the constellation of factors that seem to go into having an eating disorder. So that we know when kids are younger who are predisposed to having an eating disorder that might look like anorexia, they tend to be a little bit more attentive to detail. They tend to be a little more exact. They tend to be a little bit more anxious or, or wired in a way that the world is just a little brighter, faster, louder. Uh, more quickly moving than the world is for some other people's brains. And if we can uh, talk to parents and to kids themselves even about what it's like to live in a brain that sort of has a high def view of the world, like your HD brain sees everything. And that's great. How do you make sure that your HD brain gets enough rest? How do you make sure that it stays soothed? How do you make sure you feed it well? So I think we can think about those things when we're talking about prevention because you can you can see those kids early on. They're the kids who make lists. They're the kids who want to watch early. They're the kids who want to know if they're going to be late. They're the kids who are really attentive to where things are. They're the ones that'll pick up when you leave something behind, or they're the kids that like the orderliness of putting toys away. Uh, those kids, that's that's terrific, and not certainly not all of those kids will get an eating disorder or even are all at risk. But those are some of the signs that we look for early on. And then if, if kids have any signs around restricting their food or having to eat a certain way or having certain rules about food, those signs I'll put together say, yep, we can do something about this. We need to help this child have a little more flexibility. On the other side, if you, if you have a, a young person who early on is a little more chaotic and impulsive and has a harder time sort of following the rules and maybe is, uh, has a harder time figuring out if they're hungry or full and you can sort of see those more chaotic impulsivity traits to start with. Those are great traits again because those kids tend to be creative, they take risks, they're the kids that are like, let's go do it! And their planning friends are back, they're like, but what about? And they work well together. But the kids who are the more impulsive kids, they also need a little bit of help with, okay, how do I soothe myself? How do I just slow down a little bit? How do I think a little bit before I leap? 
how do I use a little bit of information to make a decision, and how do I do that with food? So I think we can do a lot in terms of preventing eating disorders and probably also helping kids to be their best selves even if they'd never get an eating disorder if they have some of those traits. How about treatment? How does research inform the treatment we offer here? I think the research informs the treatment really clearly in terms of helping clients to understand that the way they think is is influenced by the brains they have, which seems sort of silly to say because, of course, the way you think is influenced by your brain because you think with your brain. But the kind of thinking you have and the pathways that you think and react sort of instinctively or naturally have a lot to do with your brain wiring and have a lot to do with your neurobiology. So if we can help somebody with binge eating disorder understand that the reason they have a really hard time feeling full or they have a really hard time finding the thing that's rewarding to eat is not because they're not working hard enough, not because they don't have enough willpower, not because they're not paying enough attention, but because their brains are wired to be really interested in the reward of food. Their brains are wired to seek food and to experience it in the certain ways that they do. If we can help them to understand that that's who they are and it's not bad, it's awesome because those traits are really awesome when applied to other things. If we can help them to frame themselves in their recovery and find other ways to maximize those traits, then they can do really awesome things. If they feel like they can't possibly get it right or they just can't possibly stick to something or they just can't do certain things that they're eating they've tried to do their whole lives, maybe it's because their brains are not really interested in that. And so how do we help them to rethink it in a different way? And the same way on the other end of the spectrum, if somebody's struggling with anorexia and they have a lower reward for food, they really need to know things like, When you're in recovery and something happens, somebody dies, you have a a grief experience, you have a, a loss of some sort, you have some stress of some sort, your appetite might go away, like lots of people's appetite sort of decrease in those times. And your brain is going to experience that as not so bad. Somebody else's brain might experience that as kind of distressing and they end up eating pretty quickly after that. Somebody with anorexia or a history of anorexia might find that their brain sort of forgets to eat, right? Just like those people who forget to eat that we talked about in the beginning. And they need to be very mindful of making sure that they're taking care of themselves and making sure that they recognize like, yep, that's the brain I have and I need to feed it even if it's not terribly interested in eating. So there are ways to treat these disorders that don't involve eating necessarily. I think a lot of people imagine coming to treatment, especially residential, and they're envisioning that the treatment is, we do however many meals a day, and I either am forced to eat more than I'm used to, or I'm forced to eat less. But is that actually what we do? I mean, we do way more than that, which right. I know, but for our listeners, <laughs> yeah. what do we do? Yeah, we do way more than that. We too do way more than that. There's a lot of, there can be a lot of uncomfortable eating experiences as people go through recovery. And, and, I, and I say that because if we could make that easier, we so would. You know, having had an eating disorder myself, I know how hard that is. It's really, really hard. It's a really difficult set of things to get through. And, and the only sort of upside to that is, If you can get through them, you can get through them and you can move on. And there's no way around it or under it or over it. You just kind of go through it. And hopefully we will help you to feel as supported and and surrounded and held during that process as possible so that you can get through it. But through it is, ugh, it's the only way to get to get it done. Uh, but we do a lot of other things to manage the experience. We do a lot of a lot of therapy, so a lot of talking about how what kind of cognitive skills and and uh, 
sort of management techniques do you need to to think about how you're thinking and to help change the way you're thinking if it's not helpful? So we do a lot of cognitive skills. We do a lot of emotion skills that what kind of help do you need to, to better manage your emotions and to feel more productive in managing your emotions and to manage your distress or your positive emotions? We do a lot of emotion skills work. We do a lot of mindfulness work so that people can, you know, you can't really figure out how to manage your emotions until you know what they are. So we do a lot of mindfulness uh, education and practice so that people can get connected to their bodies and their brains and understand what's happening. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, we do some movement, we do yoga as a mindful movement to really reconnect with body, which can be challenging. Uh, we do a lot of support of each other, and that's one of the most beautiful things I think about eating disorder treatment is that when you get a group of people together who all struggle with an eating disorder, no matter what kind of eating disorder it is, they can see ways to help the people in the group. And sometimes they can see ways to help others that they can't see themselves. They can't quite see how to help themselves, but boy, they can help that person across the room from them. And at our, our founder, Dirk Miller, has a saying that, that, I, that I really like that resonates with lots of people. He says, you know, our problems are only confusing to us. Which I think is a really great thing to think about. It is, right? Your friend calls you and tells you some problem they're having, and you're like, dude, you should do this. And they're like, wow, you're a genius. You're like, no, not really. Kind of obvious. Uh, but when you think about it yourself, you're like, yeah, I, I don't quite know what to do about this. But you tell somebody else, and they can see a path. And that's what group therapy is. It's a group of people who can see other paths for you that you might not be able to see yourself. And they're right there on the side of the path cheering you along as you go. And so that's a lot of what treatment is, is having other people there who totally get it, or at least partially get it, to help you do the things you need to do, all that hard work you need to do to get through it to get better. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to talk about what you're excited for this year. What am I excited for this year? I'm excited for, for lots of things. I'm excited uh, for the Emily program to open some new programs. I'm excited about our new residential program we're opening uh, in the west side of Minneapolis. That's called Anna Western House West because it's on the west side. Tricky, I know. Uh, <laughs> super excited about being able to offer more care to more people. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about some other programs we have expanding for more treatment for adolescents in, in Minnesota and in Seattle. So there's lots of things that the Emily program I'm excited for. Uh, Personally, I'm excited for, for my daughter to go to another another amazing set of camps to learn to be an even better violist. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about the snow we're going to get today so that we can appreciate <laughs> spring even more tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm excited about um, about really being able to do, do more, to bring more help to more people. That's awesome. For our listeners, we will post blogs about the sites we're opening and all of those changes as they happen, and we have slightly more information. However, they are happening, so we're super excited about that here. And one last question, Jillian. You struggled with an eating disorder yourself. What would you tell other people struggling? Hang in there and do it. That it's a recovery's probably, and this is true for me, recovery is probably the hardest the hardest thing you'll ever do, and it's 100% worth it. That personally, I believe that, and as a clinician who's worked with lots and lots and lots of people, I've never, ever had any client I've ever worked with come back and say, yeah, all that recovery stuff wasn't worth it. It is. It's really hard. You might believe that you're going to be the one who never gets better, and you can get better, and you just have to keep trying because it's it's definitely possible. So I think that's the the most important thing and sometimes the hardest thing to believe, but it, it really is. I was just at recovery night last night here in St. Paul and our speaker said the same thing and I thought that's so true. It's true for her, it was true for me, it's true for really everybody I've ever talked to who's recovered that they agree. Like 
eating disorder recovery is really hard and probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest things you'll ever do. And you'll get to be proud of that on the other side and, and have that as something you accomplished. But you got to keep going. Just keep trying. That's all we have time for. So thank you so much for joining us, Jillian. Thanks for having me. If people are interested in this current research or the work you're doing, um, because you do a lot of work with other organizations that aren't the Emily Program, where can they find that? I think most of it is probably available on the Emily Program website, either on the blog or, or on social media. I think there are some good connections there. Perfect. So our website is emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. And if you enjoyed this podcast piecemeal, please share it with your friends. As always, we believe that full recovery from an eating disorder is possible, and we hope you reach out if you need help. 